Hey, what's up, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners? Now, I wanted to announce a new project I got going on, the Rich Uncle YouTube channel. So those of you guys have been following me for the past several years since we started this podcast back in 2016. Simple Passive Cashflow started off with uh, me buying some turnkey rentals, eventually getting my portfolio to 11 in 2015. And I felt the pinch and I realized these rental properties was not the uh, path to financial freedom. It was a path there, which I still think non-accredited investors under a quarter million, half a million should definitely go and buy a rental property, get that experience, feel what it is to be a remote landlord, and then move off to bigger and better things as you become more of a credit investor or on the verge of such a transition into being more of a passive LP partner, diversifying yourself over multiple deals out there where you're just an LP partner, little to no liability, no debt in your name. You can still travel hack all these credit cards, which we'll have a future podcast on that too. And you can also you know, partake in the value add strategy, right? When you're buying re turnkey rentals, what you're essentially doing is you're just buying an asset that has little to no built-in equity in there other than your down payment. And there's no business plan to increase the revenue, therefore increase the price. Where these large apartment syndications, mobile home parks, et cetera, there's usually some business plan to force appreciate the asset. And maybe we'll get lucky with some market appreciation in there too, as typically real estate goes up in price. But the big thing is that force appreciation. The only way you can do force appreciation is if you do it on your own in a burst strategy. And that is the, my first premiere video on the Rich Uncle YouTube channel, which you guys can go and check out. So the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast and YouTube channel will continue on this path as you guys grow with me to be accredited investors. But lately, maybe I'm just getting old, but I see a lot of kids these days between the ages of 18 and even mid to early 30s that really haven't gotten it together, right? Their net worth is still under a quarter million, half a million dollars. And maybe for you guys listening, maybe this would be that cool, hip, fun video version of Simple Passive Cashflow for kids where they can learn about this stuff, learn more about those basic financial things. In this first video, which we're going to be talking about is the first strategy that you can give them. A lot of these people like to do this buy, rent, rehab, repair. I frankly think it's a waste of time and not a really good risk-adjusted return when you could just be a passive LP partner. But what do you do if your net worth is lower and you don't have any connection? That's what this video is talking all about. So share it with your kids and uh, listen to Rich Uncle as they start to become old and grumpy in the future. But for now, it's just Rich Uncle is a YouTube channel. And on today's podcast, I'm going to be quickly going over what is uh, rich debt and press equity. And I think a lot of you guys have told me you're frustrated about other podcasts out there, just the same old lame thing. And yeah, everybody does podcasts these days. They're pretty easy, to be honest. Now, this is a sort of a sample of what you're going to find in the syndication LP course. And if you guys haven't checked that out, please go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash syndication to check out the free guide to syndication. And there's going to be a link in there to the e-course. Now, the e-course, I think it costs like maybe a few hundred bucks, but it's really good. It's not just some lame book that's just going to tell you every little thing that everybody other regurgitates over and over again, just runs through a spin text application to regenerate the same old 100-page, 200-page book. It's going to tell you the secrets of what syndicators are doing out there to trick you guys into going into whatever deal. Not saying it's a bad deal, but I think it's just good to be aware of these things. And today's podcast, talking about prep equity and bridge check, is going to be a sample of what you're going to find in the e-course, which I think it would take most people 10 to 15 hours uh, to go through the entire e-course. But with that said, here is the content. 
This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive Cash Flow listeners. Today we are going to be talking to Bob Burnett, chairman and co-founder of Divi Systems. But he is going to be catching us up to speed on this whole Bitcoin crypto craze that has been happening. It's going to be a little bit of review, but a lot of new concepts and good ideas that when I first see, saw his presentation really helped the whole thesis around inflation and investing in just real hard assets. And maybe Bitcoin might be one of them. But welcome, Bob. I appreciate you coming on and doing this. For those of you listening on the podcast, I would encourage you later on to come over to the website and the YouTube channel to catch up. We're going to have a full presentation on this. If you guys love PowerPoint slides, going to have a lot of good images that we're going to be referring to. You guys can also check out our crypto page at simplepassacashflow.com slash crypto and join our community too. We have also a lot of discussions on crypto within the group, but yep. Bob, let's, let's educate the folks. All right. Well, hey, thank you, Lane. I, I appreciate the chance to talk to you again, and especially to your viewers and listeners today. And frankly, anytime I get a chance to talk about this topic, I do so because not only is this for me one of the greatest financial opportunities for people, but it's something that I believe in passionately from the perspective of freeing people and creating equality around the world. And I, I think nothing represses people more than mismanagement of money or corruption of money. And I, I come from that spot when I speak with people, almost from an evangelical perspective, sometimes I like to say. So as you said, uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, you see the title of this is a freedom in money. And, and that's the perspective that I come from as I talk to you today. And one of the first things I like to do when I speak with people, and Lane and I've already talked a little bit, but I'll, I'll pose this question to you, Link, for the benefit of the users, which is if you think about where crypto is having its largest impact, do you have a, a couple guesses as to where that is? And where is it? Yeah. I'm going to give away the slides here because I know what the answer is. Here's where it's happening, guys. The, where's the adoption of the Bitcoin and all these cryptos where it's all these jacked up countries? There's turmoil within their currency. So as a slide yeah. here, Nigeria, Vietnam, Philippines, Turkey, Peru. The United States is relatively low on this list, right, Bob? Yeah, and I think that's important from a couple perspectives. The first one is what this tells you is that people in turbulent areas of the world are recognizing the value of cryptocurrency faster and appreciating it faster than those people in first world countries. The bottom of the list, for those of you who are only listening, is Japan, Germany, U.S., so you have these really stable countries, which actually have very low adoption rates, like four or five, 6%. And you have at the top of the list, you have Nigeria at 32%. So that's very important to remember. So when we look at what's the price of Bitcoin, for instance, which we'll talk more about later, is it, is it a bubble? Is it about to burst? Is there no opportunity for upside in it? The answer is absolutely not. We're just barely getting started. And it's also important I think when you reflect on this, you might say, why do we need money? Why do we need a new form of money? What's wrong with the dollar or the euro? I'm going to talk to you later. I think there are some severe things wrong with it, but I'd say the average person doesn't see them. And so they think, hey, there's no need for some new version of money. But I'll look at these other places. They understand it. And uh, there's a stat 
that over the last three decades, 57 countries have had their currency fail. Some of them multiple times, like Argentina, Chile, Zimbabwe. It's a pretty common thing for a currency to fail. And when it fails, it generally means the people that have held their wealth in that currency, they're at a total loss. As you look at this, if you struggle, and we talk about Bitcoin, as you struggle a little bit about what's its importance, it may be important to change your optics and say, hey, am I looking at it just through my eyes, maybe sitting in Los Angeles, California, or Birmingham, Alabama, or some place in a first world country, or would I see it differently if I was in Lagos, Nigeria, or Manila in the Philippines? Maybe you'd have a different perspective. The other thing is, Lane, my background is actually as a technologist, as an engineer. For those of you who are a little older, I used to be the chief technology officer at a company called Gateway, which in the 90s and early 2000s was one of the largest PC companies in the world. And in that role, my job was to not only develop the products, but create the vision for the company about where we were going. And, and it made me a history student of, about technology. And what I realized through that work was that the most important inventions in the history of mankind have all been from the perspective of creating a degree of freedom. If the invention creates freedom, then it will be revolutionary and massive and almost impossible to define the economic and social implications of that technology. Things like the cell phone, things like electricity would fall. Or in other words, disruptors within industries. Yeah. And massively disruptive. You think about the automobile, it wasn't just the automobile, but it changed what roads look like. It changed how people worked, where they worked, how far they could live from work, where they went on vacation, the implications are just so numerous. And that's the same with cryptocurrency. I can sit here today and I, I will, and I'll give you some of my thoughts about the future, but I'm sure I'll just be scratching the surface of what it really means and what the possibilities are. So just for most of the people here, if, if you were you know, born in, let's say the eighties the or the nineties, it means that you saw the beginning of the cell phone. And at the beginning of the cell phone, it was just a mobile phone. It wasn't the centerpiece of your life and, and this thing driving social media and the centerpiece of your financial world. You're absolutely right, Lane. We work with hardworking professionals looking to opt out of investments for the clueless. I mean, mainstream investing. We work with people we have a direct relationship while enjoying higher returns and a quicker path to financial freedom. I personally move my endorsement from turnkey rentals to syndications as my net worth has grown. However, the downside of many of these deals is that you need at least $50,000 to invest and the frequency of deals that meet my criteria is sporadic. Check out my article at simplepassivecashflow.com slash OFUND and learn how I always have cash on hand by using the American Home Preservation Fund as part of this one-two punch to be ready for a great deal while still making a double-digit return. I've been investing in HP since 2016. AHP is a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, where collectively the fund and investors like you pull their money together and get great bulk discounts on distressed mortgages. It's a business model that I think gets stronger should a bump in the economy come, because this is where there will be even more distressed inventory for AHP to purchase. The American Home Preservation Fund aims to keep people in their homes so you can make a 10% return while making a positive social impact. Invest in as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com investors. 
And if you want the free Burn Zone book and learn about George Newberry's story, please send me an email at lane at simplepassacasual.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. The other thing I'll say about Bitcoin is I have a little acronym. It's called privacy, inflation protection, and efficiency. I think that these things are at the fundamental tenets of what Bitcoin is providing. Privacy, because what's happening in the world is we are losing even the choice to be anonymous in our financial transactions. I can't even decide to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks and have that be a private transaction. That ability is being taken from us. Inflation, we're going to talk a lot about this in just a second lane. And, and then efficiency. I, I'll talk less about this later, so I'll do it a little bit now. But when you look at things like, for instance, remittance, Remittance meaning sending money overseas. And you look at the countries we talked about at the beginning, Nigeria, Vietnam, Philippines. One common aspect of all those countries, my wife actually being Filipina and uh, having family back there as a business back there, money is constantly being sent from the U.S. back to the Philippines. And when we use the traditional bank wire system, SWIFT system, or Western Union or places like that, to send that money, it's massively inefficient. It's very slow, it's very expensive. For instance, sending $200 from here to the Philippines with a service like Western Union is likely to end up with the equivalent of $150 in purchasing power landing at the end point. Terribly inefficient, but if we use cryptocurrency, we can see like 98, 99% of that value move. And we can do it instantly instead of over three days or five days. And, and that's the trouble, right? Like these large companies like PayPal or the credit card companies, they're all getting their share and the, the buying power, the transaction between buyer and seller is being wasted, lost. Exactly. And they're able to do that because in large part, it's an oligopoly. It's a very small group of companies who coordinate and control pricing in those markets, in any market. Your viewers are obviously more financially astute than the average. Risk and reward are generally tied to each other. If, as an example, I'm going to send $200 to the Philippines, and if I show up at a bank or a Western Union office, and I hand $200 in cash to them to start that transaction, there essentially is no risk in that process for any of the people providing the service throughout. And I'm not denying there is some service being performed, but the risk of taking a 25% cut doesn't make any sense. And but that's what happens when you have monopolies and you have oligopolies and the banking system is probably no better example of that in the world than the banking system. Okay. We'll talk for a second now about money and inflation and what's kind of going on in the world. And the first thing is I'm going to play just a very short little video clip here from a guy named Neil Kashkari, who's president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. This is from a 60-minute interview about a month after the COVID crisis. And I think you'll find his words very interesting. Can you characterize everything that the Fed has done this past week as essentially flooding the system with money? Yes, exactly. And there's no end to your ability to do that? There is no end to our ability to do that. So very interesting quote. So. It, it basically is saying there's a certain amount of money out there in the world already, and we're just going to print as much as we want without any control. There's no oversight. There's no vote by Congress. There's no vote of the people. They're going to print as much as they want, and there's no end to that ability. Very scary. No, what? 
there's different theories on this, right? Like my thought, and I don't really care too much. At the end of the day, it's going to become inflation. The reason why I invest in hard assets. But like, why can America do that, right? Is it because our military? Why doesn't all the other countries just print a bunch of money too? The truth is, Lane, they do. Canada prints it. The uh, ECB managing the euro does it. The Bank of Japan does it. Bank of Japan's been doing it for since 1980, since their financial crisis there. And as they print this money and they create debt, they create a lot of debt for the governments. Then what they have a tendency to do is repress interest rates. And as they repress those interest rates and the debt grows, they back themselves into a corner because if they have all this debt, the U.S. has debt somewhere just short of $30 trillion now. If they increase interest rates, they'll increase the debt burden on their own debt and they can't do it, right? They back themselves into a corner where the natural thing is at some point, if you repress interest rates, you create certain actions, you create inflation. Because they're trying to create inflation. We'll talk about that later. Their stated goal is to create inflation. At some point, you have to use increased interest rates to dampen the inflation but they've lost that tool because if they increase the interest rates, now, now their debt burden is ridiculous. It's a very ugly circle. And so there's different schools of economic thought about it, but you talked about like sound money and hard assets. The Austrian school of economics is really founded on that principle. And it would say, you don't do this. If the economy is taking a hit, you have to let it take its hit and you pay the price and it will recover and self-balance and everything will be okay. If instead what you do is you just keep printing money, you're kicking the can down the road, but the problem at the end gets worse and worse. Theoretically, I'm not actually predicting this, but theoretically you end up with the, the Zimbabwe case or the Venezuelan case where people are walking around with wheelbarrows full of cash to buy a loaf of bread, that classic example. It does really happen. It's even happened in modern days. I, I think because of, as you said, the U.S. that won't happen to because at least right now it's the global reserve currency that provides some insulation and, and counters the hyperinflation forces. But it doesn't mean there won't be material inflation forces, though. And, and again, we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. So second thing I want to talk about here, this is a little privacy and uh, just a little history lesson. There is an organization a lot of people probably haven't heard of. It's called the International Bank of Settlements. And uh, I think a good way to think about it, it is the bank of banks. So if you have the Central Bank of Peru and the Central Bank of Austria, and they want to move money between them, they need a bank in the middle of them to make that transaction. And that's the International Bank of Settlements. It's run by a fellow named Augustin Carstens. He's a former finance minister of Mexico. And I, I found this quote, which was from January 1st of this year, speaking at a conference about the future of digital money, basically central bank controlled digital money, which is called CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. So I'm going to play this short quote for you here. We don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a $1,000 bill today. A key difference with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that 
expression of central bank. And also, we will have the technology to enforce that. Those two issues are extremely important, and that makes a huge difference with respect to what... So hopefully you're able to catch that, those of you listening. He does have a little bit of an accent, but what he's really saying is we're at the central bank level. There's an attempt to redefine what cash is and to do so in a way that essentially leaves no room for privacy and financial transactions anymore. And I think that understanding that a lot of critics of this will say things like, don't do anything wrong. Why should you be worried about people knowing what your financial transactions are? If you don't do anything wrong, you shouldn't worry about it. And the big concern is the sex traffickers, the money launderers, the drug dealers. We have to protect against those people. And my comment is first that I, I believe, and this is a, a U.S. thing, that I have a right to my privacy and that if unless I'm suspected of doing something, I shouldn't be surveilled. This is essentially saying we are going to surveil everything. And it, not just at the U.S. level, but he's talking, this is the International Bank of Settlements, not the Fed. This is not even a U.S. agency, but talking about a global oversight over this whole thing, number one. Number two, one of the powerful things about blockchain, but also the negative things about blockchain is that every transaction is theoretically preserved forever. So what it means is there can be a revisionist interpretation of transactions. So today, I don't think anybody would dispute that filling your car with gasoline is in any way an offense and that something that you should pay a fine for or be in prison for. But in kind of a potential dystopian future, and I'm doing this for illustrative purposes, not to scare people, but to say, what if 20 years from now, global warming does take hold and that environmental concerns get bigger? What's to stop them at that point from going back and looking at the blockchain and saying, hey, Lane, over the course of the last three decades, you've purchased $100,000 worth of gasoline and you therefore created this carbon footprint. So here is a tax or a fine for having done that. Or maybe in a real dystopian view, you've personally ruined the environment, therefore I'm putting you in prison. So again, I'm using extreme examples for illustrative purposes, but- Just that we never know, but things to think about. Yeah, yeah. And again, I, I think what you have to do is you have to say, where is your line? What is reasonable? And I think, for a bank or, or a federal agency to say, hey, we want regulations that financial transactions over a certain size or, or repeated at a certain level with a certain volume, maybe those need to be disclosed. Fine. Okay. I understand. I'm not so libertarian or so extreme to say that should be the case. But I think this line of saying at the beginning of this quote, we don't know who's using a hundred dollar bill today. I'm like, hey, if I want to use a hundred dollar bill, I, I believe that's my right. And if I do something wrong with it, let's say I buy cocaine with it, fine, arrest me for buying cocaine, but don't use the $100 bill as the tool upon which to do that. And, and these are like, this is why I don't like politics, right? It's like the, the, the big governments, folks against this cryptocurrency are using this as their argument. But in yeah. actuality, they just want to make sure they can tax people at the end of the day. And, or maybe there's a few other things that I'm missing that they yeah. want, but they're using this as the scapegoat. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. 
And again, there's always unintended consequences. So how big is the reach? So anyway, it's a point in time where I think we have to be very careful. That, that was my big thing against the crypto stuff. Yeah, I think it's great. And I'd sure to not have to send wires off and all this type of stuff. And all these escrow companies would go away and all these um, title companies, because they would be tracked via Bitcoin. But these are some of the unintended consequences. And the governments don't want this to happen. They lose their power as the central banks. And Oh yeah. It may not be good to be betting against the big guys, but yep. I don't know. I think yeah. you're going to get into it later, right? There's becoming more mainstream adoption of the big banks by the stuff that it's hit that tipping point where it's hit that adoption point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I will tell you, Lane, again, this is just one person's opinion, but I would say the number one reason that governments want to continue control money is that if government wants to accomplish something, let's just say um, they wanna build a bridge somewhere, okay? There are two ways to pay for the bridge, federal government, let's say, okay? They can tax people or they can print new money, okay? So if you tax people, there is no way around it. It has to be fully disclosed. People get uh, pissed off. They stop electing their off. officials. Right, so it's a lot easier to print money because you say, we need a hundred billion dollars to build this bridge. Okay. If we just print the money and we just dilute the overall several trillion dollar money supply by a tiny bit, we're basically stealing the money from the people who already had the money. I use the word it's insidious. It's hidden. It yes. gets the money from people, robs them in their sleep, but people don't know. And now the government and everybody's yeah, inflation happened, you know? sucks for all of us. It wasn't our fault. And people buy that story. Yeah. I, I like to call it death by a thousand paper cuts because you take a little piece every day and it's not enough to, to make it hurt. If you know, eventually you lose an arm, if you take a, a big enough paper, if you lock the whole arm off at the beginning, people are going to be pretty upset about it. But if you take it uh, a slice of skin every day, it's less upsetting to people. Yeah. And, and this is, what do you do about it? You buy hard assets. You don't be a saver. The savers will be the losers. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that's the, that's a great point lane, because to me, that is the fundamental problem with the world we have today, that you're absolutely right. Your community here is ahead of the game because you're providing yourself by investing in hard assets, investing in cash flowing assets, you provide yourself a lot of protection against this inflation. But the sad part of it is that. If you look at the wealth distribution, we have a slide on this. If you look at the wealth distribution of low-income people and high-income people, high-income people have very little cash and a lot of assets, and low-income people have a lot on a percentage basis. Low-income people have a lot of cash and no assets. So when inflation occurs, it hurts the low-income people way worse than it hurts the high-income people. So it's th this whole thing about taxation. So when the present administration is doing a lot of things to raise taxes on the wealthy. That's the way they view it. And to make the poor feel better, not fully disclosing that while they are raising taxes, they're printing the shit out of money and hurting the poor a lot worse than the wealthy. It is what it is. And it's important to be educated and know yep. how the system works. And I, I mean, here's something funny. We usually get takeout and I eat more than my fair share of the food for sure. <laughs> uh -huh. And if my wife's a saver here, yeah. uh, I eat her food in the <laughs> next coming days. I call it inflation.
And I'm being a troll, but I do yeah. it because you only got one time in the world and time is valuable, blah, blah, blah. But it's true, right? Savers are losers. People yeah. who hold on to things and don't do anything are ultimately going to be poor in the future. Yeah, it's true. And part of my message here today is in the current financial system, that is absolutely true. In the Bitcoin system, it can change a little bit. And in the Austrian school of thought, it can change a little bit where not that investment can't be rewarded, but that in a true hard money, savings is not penalized. I'll put it that way. You know, that you're not going to get obscene wealth through savings, let's say, but you're also not going to get robbed. So that's what I believe an economic system that would have that characteristic would be fair to me. Because I like to give an example. I have a grandson, he's nine years old, and his name's Arkin. And if I say, hey, Arkin, come over to the house and help me clean the garage. Okay. And let's say I give him $20 for cleaning the garage. What I want to say as his grandfather is, hey, Arkin, put that money in your piggy bank and save it for college. Save it for 10 years. And when you go to college, that's going to help pay for your college. But I can't give him that advice today. That, by the way, that advice was given to me by my grandfather but I can't give it to my grandson. Why? Because if he puts $20 in a piggy bank or a savings account, he's going to have about 12 or $14 of purchasing power 10 years from now when he needs it. It's ridiculous. So what it does is it forces a nine-year-old into investing. And one thing about investing is investing always involves risk. So we can do it certainly in a way where he's not taking inordinate risk, but it doesn't seem fair to me that a couple hours of work that he put in to help me, that labor can't be preserved and used later in time with equivalent value. That we're basically robbing from a nine-year-old kid. That's what inflation's doing. It's robbing from a nine-year-old kid and stealing the work that he put in cleaning a garage. And I think when you think about it in that context, and then you extrapolate it and say, maybe it's robbing from somebody who worked for 40 years and put their money in their savings account and money market funds, and now they're trying to retire and live off of that. And I think, again, your folks listening to this, you probably understand that it's a shame that people are taught that, but that's what our system teaches people because they should get that money instead of in a money market or a savings account should have been going into hard assets and preferably cash flowing hard assets. And, but that's not what most people do. That's what certainly what not what most people are taught. Yeah. And that's unfortunate, but maybe yeah. you should just troll your kid, steal his money to call it inflation. <laughs> yeah. Either he's going to be really smart in the future, or he's going to be an email child and go down a wrong path. One of the two risks. Yeah. So anyway, we, we'll, we should probably keep this thing moving, it, not, not bogged down too much. What happened with Bitcoin in the last year has been just unbelievable. And certainly several other cryptocurrencies have followed along, but I, I like to focus on Bitcoin because it's the granddaddy. It's a trillion dollar market cap. And I've been preaching about it for several years now. And, but a lot of things happened in the last year because of COVID and the resulting actions by central banks around the world. And as I said in the previous slide there, basically a decade happened in a year. And so all of these things, the level of quantitative easing, concerns over stability of a lot of governments, it accelerated a whole bunch of things and made the case for Bitcoin at an unbelievable level. And one of the things we saw, you talked about this earlier, Lane, was this dramatic change and rapid maturation 
of the market where big banks, big financial institutions, JP Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, et cetera, they've all jumped in. They all have a presence. They're all providing services, often custodial services being the number one thing that they provide. So this concern like about, oh, it's, for instance, Janet Yellen, U.S. Treasury Secretary, who has, has pissed me off, frankly, frequently lately, because she's been saying things like Bitcoin doesn't have a function other than to help money launderers and criminals. That's really not true. And we can, because of the blockchain, take a reasonable estimation of how much illegal activity is going on. Most of the estimates are about one or 2% of the money in the Bitcoin world is being attributed to some sort of criminal, which is less than the US dollar, by the way which is probably more like four or 5%, but nobody blames the dollar for yeah. pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Trust us. Trust us. And we've the had government a lot wants is always wants the best. And will always yeah. Protect. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people believe that. And, but I don't think the facts support it very well. And just on that list, just to expand on it a little bit, not only has some of those big companies, but all the big payment processors, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Venmo just the other day, they're all in big life insurance companies, Massachusetts Mutual, New York Life. They both put several hundred million dollars into Bitcoin. We've got funds like Guggenheim, Tesla put a billion and a half dollars in. So this is rapid acceptance across the institutional and corporate structures around the world. And we'll dig in a little deeper on that in, in a minute. I had given a speech in February of 2020 and right before COVID. And at that point in time, Bitcoin was trading at about $9,500. And we saw a dip. It had a, it had a big blip on a Black Thursday, uh, March 12th, recovered very quickly and has been as high as 65,000, now sits at 55,000. And a lot of people, when they looked at this, situation. For instance, the gold bugs, and maybe there's some of you on here today, they've been dreaming about this day when the world would turn into this chaotic situation, whether that was a pandemic, a world war, something like that would happen, and gold would suddenly become this massively appealing asset. Didn't happen. That same period of time I talked about Bitcoin being up about 300%, gold's only up about 20%. And this year it's only up about 3%. It's just kind of been middling. It really hasn't done anything. And it's my belief. I don't think I can prove it, nor can I think anybody disprove it. But I think basically what has happened is I think Bitcoin has stole all that thunder. So the, the trillion dollars, Bitcoin rose almost a trillion dollars in market cap between early 2020 and today. And I think it stole all that from gold and that gold would probably be in the 2000, 2100 range at least if Bitcoin wasn't there. And I think what's happening is that people are realizing that Bitcoin is superior to gold in every metric except for history. So it's merely a comfort factor that gold has thousands of years of history as money or at least as a store of value. And I'm not saying it's bad. I don't think it's going to crash necessarily overnight or anything like that. But most of the attributes that have made it uh, appealing as money, I believe, are diluting. And we're going to see it kind of middle along and probably float down to more its natural rate of 
what its value is as jewelry and as an in, in its industrial usage, what the gold people like to say it's intrinsic value. And I think we'll find that most of its current value is in the speculative component, not in the intrinsic value. And this happened with, you know, silver, for instance, silver lost its position as money. And this is where a lot of like the gold bugs and we don't want to mention names out there, but if you break down a lot of their theses on why gold is the thing, other than the fact that they get compensated and get commissions every time you buy and yeah. you click on their link, same could be said for crypto. And so I think we both agree with a lot of these guys' arguments, but why not crypto? And they can't answer it other than yeah. the fact that their website cannot get commissions off Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very true. And he said, I can tell you, Lane, and I tell your audience, I'm not here selling anything. I'm doing it from an, like I said, purely evangelical perspective, because I want the world to be a better place for my kids, for my grandkids. And, and I think this is not to be overly dramatic. There is a one-time chance in the history of mankind left to take control of money from governments. This is it. I don't believe they will ever let a Bitcoin sneak up on them again, that they were blindsided by this. They ignored it for a long period of time. And now that it's, it got really big, really fast, they didn't see that coming. They didn't see the adoption infiltrating fortune 500 companies and major funds and big financial institutions. And, and now they're trapped. They really can't ban it legally. There's no way that's going to happen. They can't shut it off. Technically it's too big and too widespread. They can make it maybe a little difficult, but they can't stop it. And this is it folks. This is our chance. So if you like your fiat money, then, you know, God bless you and go for it. But if you want the world to have a hope of having a true, free, transparent, non-inflationary money supply, this is it. Jump on board. Now, one of the things I'll say here is I think people often have a hard time figuring out what Bitcoin is. So they like to compare it to things that they already see. Is it like this stock? Is it like gold? Is it? But the problem is it's so many things. I think you have to really say it's something unique in and of itself. It's a monetary network, a decentralized monetary network. It's a protocol like the internet. Of course, as a money characteristics, very strong as a store of value, some value as a medium of exchange. It has the ability to be a unit of account, although right now it doesn't really have a lot of that. And I think when people think about, should I put some of my net worth into it? How do I think about it? How do I evaluate it? It gets really difficult. And I think people get stuck on that. I say that you have to think about it completely differently. If you're a trader type person, which I am not, but if you are, it's going to be very tricky because I think a lot of the things you think you may know about what a certain trading pattern looks like or a certain shape of a curve or a certain pattern, you may see that in Bitcoin and say, oh, if, if this is happening in a stock, it would mean I buy or I sell or I do this. But don't think that you can apply those same curves to Bitcoin. It might work one time and then be an absolute dumpster fire the next time. Bitcoin doesn't follow those patterns. And again, it's not a company. There's no leader. It has no head. It, it isn't beholden to anybody. That's a big thing. But the last thing I'll say about it here is this is the way I look at it. I don't measure it in dollars. So I view Bitcoin as an emerging parallel financial universe. Okay. And if I move some part of my wealth 
from the existing fiat universe, primarily dollar base, and I move it over into the Bitcoin universe, I, I don't intend on it ever going back. Okay. That I, I am not, in fact, I don't like to use the expression, I bought Bitcoin. I'm more likely to say, I sold my dollars and acquired Bitcoin. And that's, that's one thing I think people often kind of mistake when they think about money is they forget that it's always a two-sided transaction. Whether you're buying a house or a pack of gum, you are selling your dollars and you're getting this other thing, whether it's a commodity or an asset. So if you bring that, if it, let's say it was an asset, when you bring that asset back to dollars, you're bringing it back into this scary thing. We've talked about inflation a little bit already. You're bringing it back to this thing that is not working for you. So if you do that, you better get it somewhere else quickly because it's a horrible store of value. It may be one of the worst stores of value of all time. And so anyway, this is an important part of, I think, about trying to get the right mindset to think about how Bitcoin works and, and how it might fit in your world. Okay, since uh, you know, you've seen uh, most of this already, Lane, there's a predominant feeling. If I go out, and I, I spoke uh, last week at, at Florida Gulf Coast University, and I had a classroom, I had about 80 kids in the classroom, and I asked all economics and business students, and I asked them, what's the current rate of inflation? And every single answer I got from the audience referred back to this chart, and it referred back to consumer price index or PCE. And the numbers that they came back with were 1.5, 2.1, those kind of numbers. And then I said to them, I said, in your life, does the last year, does inflation feel like one and a half or 2%? And basically nobody felt that their world felt that way. And so you have to peel back the onion a little bit and say, what, what are they actually measuring? When the Fed measures consumer price index, they're really measuring the cost of the base necessities of life at best, by the way, I'll even be kind to them and just say, let's say they're just looking at the base standard of living. They're not looking at asset inflation. They're not looking at luxury items. They're not looking at aspirational items. And you start looking at those things and you see a whole different picture. And you realize that real inflation is way, way higher. My personal belief, if you blend it, it's probably more like 10 or 12% right now. And uh, for those of you who can see the, the chart, this is a growth of the expansion of the money supply, which is up by about 30% year over year. So from a technical basis, that's what inflation is. Inflation is expansion of the money supply. You don't feel it symmetrically. It's not like the price of apples and bread and toilet paper all went up 30% directly. It, in fact, it usually inflates through hard assets first, the things that, you know, that Lane talks about all the time, those are the things that see it first. So when you're investing your money in those things, that's great because you're ahead of the inflation curve and you're buying those assets with pre-inflated dollars. And it might take two, three, four years for all these effects to filter through. But some of it's immediate in this world. I, I just so happened, I, I have a chart here, just current from yesterday, lumber's up 265%. Gasoline's up 182%. Corn is up 84%. Sugar's up 59%. Cotton's up 54%. Coffee's up 13%. You start looking at those numbers, and then for a lot of the folks here, 
You look at real estate. I know I live in Florida. Real estate prices are up 16% in Florida this year in one year. And if, and if you're looking at things like Miami Beach properties or Naples, Florida properties are up way more in the higher, uh, more desirable area. I got a direct antidote for that. So we're building a 200 unit apartment complex in Huntsville right now. Mm -hmm. Getting kicked our butts with the lumber prices going up, as you said. That's inflation. Yeah. It's not the fact that the lumber is more expensive. It's inflation. Yeah. We've got contingent to cover over cool, but how great is it going to be in the future when we finish building this thing and sell it? Because already... Just in the past, I would say a year, we bought another hundred unit out there. Mm -hmm. The cap rates have come down at least a quarter percent. We have a couple million dollars of equity in that property. And part of that is rehabbing units. I like to say it's our yeah. hard work and dedication. I would say a million out of $2 million of just that one property is inflation. Yep. Cap rates coming down. Yep. We're on the right side of the curve. I'm glad you're blessed with that lane and those people doing similar projects that may be watching. God bless you. There's an actual name in economics for it. It's called the Cantillon effect. And the Cantillon effect basically says that as new money comes into the system, those closest to the money benefit most. And I think you would know it as those people that see new money come into the system, they have access to cheap money, like people, you lane, you have access through the banking system and you have credibility so you can get access to money at very discounted rates that allows you to get into these assets before the effects of the inflation have rippled all the way through the system. And so you're gonna buy those assets with pre-inflated dollars, you're gonna ride that whole thing up, you're gonna ride that whole inflation curve, and do really well. But again, the guy that unfortunately is making $12 an hour and barely covers his rent and food every month, he'll never get out from that. And if what I like to say too is the best measurement of inflation is not what it costs you to live today, but are what will it cost you to live in your dream? So if your dream is a penthouse condo in Miami Beach and a Lamborghini, and you're 20 years old, let's say, and say, well, how much money is it going to take for me starting at zero to get to that? You're going to have to not only earn all the money, but you're going to have to beat inflation the whole time. Let's say to try to get there by the time you're 35, if that's your goal, you're going to have to do something really extraordinary in high inflation times. So again, that's partly why when I, I started this about how do the poor get repressed and oppressed, it's because of this. And another thing to remember is the dollar is the global reserve currency. So all the other currencies of the world are pegged to the dollar. So if you're a poor person in Manila, like we talked about earlier, that the, the gap to affluence has just gotten so massive. Like, how do you ever close it? It's almost unattainable. Here's just a couple other things just to show how inflation has changed. You know, this is since 2000, average home price up 5%, price of a car up four, college up over six. We have all those sorts of things, collectible whiskey and homes in the Hamptons. We have all those things. So we're nearing the midway point here, folks. We're really going to, we'd like to, we're going to have Bob back to finish up the conclusion, but we're going to make this uh, wrap up part one here for you guys, because I got to go get my COVID shot so I can save other people's lives in the process. And we'll record this in a future podcast, but thanks for coming by Bob. We'll connect next week and wrap this up. And 
I guess for you guys listening, we talked a lot about inflation, right? This is the insidious way that the government devalues your money if you just have it where everybody else has it in their bank accounts and their assets that don't really appreciate with the pace of inflation. So another good reading would be going to simplepassivecashflow.com slash debt. Uh, I wrote an article in Forbes regarding this topic. And yeah, this isn't the stuff that our parents taught us, but certainly, hopefully, it's not the stuff that myself and Bob are going to teach our kids. And hopefully, you're going to follow suit. But uh, we'll catch you guys next week. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.